Well, this is now twice I have uh, I preached the Sunday after Easter, and I preached the Sunday after the Christmas Eve service, and in both times, Ryan said, come back. If you come back uh, on a Sunday, you'll find our service to be just like this one, and in both times, you've gotten the holiday preacher. Uh, you've gotten me, so I'm sorry, uh, but uh, I've always been a, a bit of a contrarian. Uh, in fact, my freshman year in high school, because everyone takes Spanish uh, in my Texas high school, uh, I decided to take German, even though taking Spanish would have been so much more practical and useful. I'm going to Guatemala next week, and I know how to say la cucaracha. Uh, so, but I took German. I wanted to do something different. My junior year, our high school choir took a trip to Austria and France. Our first stop was Vienna, and I, we had some free time, and a group of about four or five guys went out, and we wanted to find a really good uh, brat, a Vienna sausage, if you will. Uh, when we found a stand, I was the only one in our group who uh, knew any German. I walked up and said, uh, Hello, guten Tag, ich möchte eine Käsebrat, a, a cheese brat. And uh, he said something very quickly to me in response, and I asked him to say it a little bit slower, and in English he then said, Do you want it on a plate or a bun? Uh, and I said, a bun. We had my, my, held my head in shame and walked away. Uh, later in college, I took two more years of German, uh, but hadn't spoken a word since college for about six or seven years, until one morning a couple years ago, I was sitting in a Starbucks in Austin and saw an older gentleman next to me reading Der Spiegel, uh, the, the big German newspaper. So I asked him about it. He was marking it up. I asked him what, what he was reading it. Was he from Germany? Turns out he was a, an executive for Motorola, and his work was taking him to Germany several times a year, so he was doing whatever he could to improve his language skills, including reading a German newspaper. Another thing that he was doing was attending a Stammtisch, a, an informal gathering around a table. It was a, a lunch at the German Texas Heritage Society downtown in Austin. Uh, and they would gather on Wednesdays for lunch, German only, no English. Uh, so he was doing this weekly to improve his language skills. And he invited me to go with him. So I was pumped. I decided to give myself a two-week crash course refresher in German uh, so I began spending an hour or two each day going through uh, German vocab flashcards, began reading the Bible in German. I decided that this chance meeting with this Motorola executive was God's providence in my life, pushing me to become a fluent German speaker. After spending a few weeks or months at the Stammtisch, I would begin speaking only German in my house. Uh, my, my boys were only a, a newborn in about a year and a half, and so... They would have some catching up to do, but they would begin speaking German, and they would become fluent German speakers, and then, Lord willing, we would plant churches in Germany. Uh, so you know what happened? Uh, two weeks later, I show up, the German Texas uh, Heritage Society. My Motorola guy wasn't there, and no one was there that was under 60, and they were all native German speakers. They were pretty uninterested in me, and an hour later, I left frustrated, disappointed, felt like a failure. I never got the, the flashcards out again. I began reading the Bible in English again, and I never went back. Uh, needless to say, my boys don't know any German, and <laughs> church planning in Germany is nowhere on the radar. So what happened? I was really excited. I had great intentions. This thing was going to happen, and then it didn't. What happened? 
Well, this wasn't a New Year's resolution. It may as well could have been, right? After all, learning something new, often a foreign language, is one of the most common American New Year's resolutions. And perhaps you can sympathize with my story with a past New Year's resolution that you've made. My guess is you can, and I know this by looking at the statistics. The statistics say that Americans, 75% of them, will make it through their New Year's resolution through one week, which sounds great. It's an overwhelming majority until you think that 25% of Americans can't even make it seven days with their resolutions. 64%, still over half, will make it past a month, and then less than half, 46%, will make it past six months. While only 8% of Americans will make it through a whole year, they'll fulfill their New Year's resolutions through 12 months. So it's very likely, statistically, that you have made a resolution and then you've, at some point in the year, gotten frustrated. You've gotten lazy. You've gotten distracted. So you quit altogether. So how should we, as Christians, think about things like New Year's resolutions? About change in general? Are are resolutions helpful? Should we commit ourselves or resolve ourselves to change? Should we be getting better? And if so, why? And then all importantly, how? Those are great questions. I'm glad you've asked them. And so this morning, we'll try to answer them uh, by looking through Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3. I've also been heavily influenced by a book by Tim Chester. We have one or two of them in the back, uh, in the book nook. It's called You Can Change. And his first three chapters are titled, What Would You Like to Change? Why Would You Like to Change? And How Are You Going to Change? So this morning, we'll kind of use those chapter titles as an outline to hopefully see the gospel as the only full source as well as means of our change. So the gospel gives us the right goal, It gives us the right motivation, and it gives us the right method. So, the goal of change. If you have your Bible, open to Philippians 3. In the first two chapters, Paul has been expressing his thanks to the Philippian church for their partnership with him in the gospel. Paul is writing from jail, but he is joyfully content because the gospel is advancing and many are believing. But apparently, there is some selfishness and some disunity in the church. So he writes what Ryan preached from on Christmas Eve in chapter 2. He writes for the church to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. He writes for them to be selfless and humble, just as Jesus has humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. But in chapter 3, we see a bit of a shift in Paul's writing. He begins to address some false teachers in Philippi, who are apparently claiming superiority over some Christians in the church because of their Jewish heritage. They're confident in their flesh, their works, or their genetic and cultural heritage. But Paul says that he has no confidence in his flesh. So let's pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 3. He has no confidence in his flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, if these false teachers have reason to claim superiority over you, I have all the more reason to claim superiority over them. As far as Jewishness went, Paul was top shelf. He was from the kingly tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, one of the religious and cultural guardians of all things Judaism. He was blameless in every respect to the law. But then in describing his pedigree, Paul uses accounting language. He counts his pedigree as loss for the sake of Christ. It's as if he has his ledger open, his accounting books on the desk in front of him, and he's weighing his accounts, he's weighing his balances. One commentator says, After his conversion to Christ, Paul recalculates the value of all the advantages of his family and his accomplishments, his social class and his moral achievements. And then he enters the new bottom line. All of those things, they all add up to one overwhelming disadvantage, one huge loss. Paul had been trusting in and pursuing after a bunch of stuff, a bunch of things, as his main goal, as the endpoint of his entire identity, as his way of becoming right before God. But he came to realize that not only were these things an unsatisfying endpoint, they were actually preventing him from what should have been his goal all along, to know Christ, which is, he would come to find out, the way to know God and be made right before him. So here's the point. You want to make one resolution this year for 2014? Here it is. To know Christ. Paul says that everything else, comparatively speaking, is entirely worthless. Not only that, but if you're a Christian and you make a bunch of other goals, like Losing weight, like reading more, relaxing more, learning a language. But knowing Christ isn't your ultimate goal. Those other things just might prevent you from actually knowing him. Why? Because if these goals end on themselves, they really just become about me. We'll talk more about that in our second point. But in one of his more famous essays, C.S. Lewis wrote about first and second things. He writes... The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog-keeping. Perhaps you know the crazy dog lady or the crazy cat lady who has just a house just overflowing with cats or dogs. She has made her animals her chief goal, but in so doing then becomes an incompetent and irresponsible pet owner. In this case, Lewis says that the lady has put second things, her animals, first. And in so doing, has ceased to even have first things, like human usefulness or dignity and pleasure for both her or her animals. He writes, put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. 
So Paul says, to know Christ should be the first thing that we pursue. Pursue that, and we get second things thrown in. Pursue second things first, however, and we get nothing. But too often, we treat Christianity like the pursuit of second things, don't we? Which is why we often think of the Christian life like one giant to-do list. This year is going to be better. This year, I'm going to read my Bible. This year, I'm going to attend church more regularly on Sundays or be more regular at community group. This year is the year I'm going to get sober. This year is the year that I'm going to be more responsible about what I look at on the internet. But if this is all Christianity is to you, it's just the pursuit of second things. You've missed the entire point altogether. The pursuit of second things doesn't give you Christ. But it also doesn't give you the accomplishment of the second things themselves. If second things become the goal, they become unmerciful taskmasters, crushing you under the weight of of performance and of disappointment. Have you ever resolved to read the Bible in a year? Some end of the year you've decided, all right, this is the year I'm going to read the whole thing cover to cover. But by the end of January, you're just crushed under the weight of failure. You missed a couple days, and so you feel guilty about it, and then you can't catch up, and then you just quit, right? Well, is it possible that from the beginning, you had committed to the second thing, reading the Bible, and not to the first thing first, knowing Christ? There have been lots of blog posts this week encouraging a, a Bible reading plan for the year, and one that I read said this, I don't perform this annual romp through scripture to make God any happier with me. I do it because it makes me happier with him. This is our goal, to know Christ. And Paul says the point is to know Christ and everything about him. His life, his suffering, his death, and the power of his resurrection. To know all of this more and more and more deeply. He wants to know everything about Christ. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ? You ever meet someone on a, on a Sunday morning, someone new, and after a minute and a half of talking to them, you know their, their first name and their hometown and what they do for a living, and then you, well, I'm done with him now, right? No, that's, you don't finish relationships. I've been married for a little over seven years now, and I'm still learning new things about my wife, Marcy. You don't finish your marriage. You don't finish relationships. And the same is true with Jesus. When you know him more and more and more, and trust more deeply in his finished work on the cross, that his, of his righteous life lived for you because you could not live it, of his sacrificing and atoning death for you so that you would not have to die for it, and his resurrecting power which raises us with him, this changes us and transforms us. The right goal, knowing Christ, transforms us. And what does Jesus say about the pursuit of him? His yoke is easy. His his burden is light. He doesn't burn us out and frustrate us like all of those second thing taskmasters. Paul says that all other religious pursuits that do not have Christ and his glory as its goal should be considered rubbish, should be considered garbage, a giant loss at the religious bottom line. So if you're in Christ and 12 months from now you've you've lost 50 pounds or you've read a few more books or you've learned a new language, 
but you don't know Christ more, what would it even matter? J.A. Packer asks this, what were, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the best thing in all of life? To know God. We must first have the right goal. But while we must have the right goal for change, we must also have the right motivation for change. The motivation of change. Paul goes on in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, the the full and deep knowledge of Christ, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay, so now Paul is committed to know Christ above all other religious ventures, but why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He presses on to grab hold of, to capture, to apprehend Christ. Why? Because Christ Jesus has already grabbed hold of him. Jesus has captured him, has apprehended him. So now Paul is putting forth great effort. He presses on to become holy because of the grace that has already saved him. In other words, Christ's divine love and his sacrificing and saving grace is Paul's driving motivation for change. But if we're honest with ourselves, God's love and his saving grace is is rarely the reason we make a resolution, the reason we press toward change. If grace isn't typically our motivation for change, what what are our motivations for change, for, for our resolutions? Even noble efforts like Bible reading or church attendance. Well, Tim Chester offers, offers three common motivations for the reason we want to change. The first is to prove myself to God. If you had a, a theological exam in front of you, you know, a Scantron with a number two pencil, and you reach the question, by what are you saved? You have A or B. A being by grace through faith, and B being my works. Very few of us would bubble in B. Right? We know this intellectually, but practically in our lives, we tend to believe B, don't we? That we are saved by our works. When we get right down to it, we often really believe B. That God is more pleased with me when I am more regularly reading my Bible. When I am at church each Sunday or attending community group. God is more pleased with me when I'm not lusting or, or jealous or angry or gossiping. Now, this deserves some nuance because I think we can see all over the New Testament that God does have a fatherly displeasure towards our sin. He wants us to be uh, satisfied in Him and Him alone, not other things and selfish pursuits. He wants us to be satisfied in Him for our good and for His glory. But the language that I often use with our youth is the language of pretending and performing. Pretending that we're not as bad as we think we are, and thereby not needing a Savior, or performing our way into God's good pleasure. And if performance, proving myself to God, even subconsciously becomes our motivation for change, we'll never succeed. Why? Because we'll never perform our way into perfect righteousness. One theologian has famously said, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. That's shocking, right? That 
our good works can be damning and separate us from God. But wasn't this Paul's conclusion in Philippians 3? When his good works were done with a wrong motivation, performance for right standing before God, not only were his good works not good enough, but they were in fact damnable. They were keeping him from knowing Christ because he depended only on himself. He had no need for a savior. He had no need for Jesus. He had no need to know him. But now, verse 9, he depends not on his own righteousness, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in the end, we must not only repent of our sin, but when righteousness comes from the wrong motive, we also need to repent of our righteousness. Only Jesus' righteousness credited to you will save. If Paul came to the conclusion that his bottom line of his account of righteousness was one giant loss, it's empty, he realized he needed a righteousness that was not from his own account. He needed a righteousness, a a filling of his account from someone else. Someone else's money. And this is what Jesus has done on the cross. Not only dying for our sin, but also crediting to us his righteousness. Proving yourself to God is an inadequate motivation. Okay, so maybe perhaps you don't feel like you are trying to prove yourself to God, but you might acknowledge that you want to change to prove yourself to others. I want to change to prove myself to others. Anyone resonate with these scenarios? Okay, everyone else at DSC is committing to a Bible reading plan for 2014, so I guess I need to also. Or no one expects me to keep this resolution because they see me year after year fail. So this year I'm going to show them. Or how about I'm not as attractive as I once was, so this year I'm really going to shed those extra pounds. Or you know what, I, ne- I never have much to contribute in a conversation, so this year I'm going to read more books, more New York Times, I'm going to read more articles on the Atlantic, so I can really sound smart. But you know what's common with all of those resolutions? The worship of the self. How's that? Because you want to fit in. You want people to think that you're successful. You want to be noticed. You want people to think that you're smart. You want people to think more highly of you. And again, if your motivation is actually keeping you from worshiping Christ because you can't stop worshiping yourself, then you'll be crushed under the weight of the pursuit of more praise. I need more people to like me, to praise me, to worship me. But this is a dissatisfying and never-ending pursuit. No one will ever praise you enough. Okay? Perhaps you don't find yourself trying to prove yourself to God or prove yourself to others. Well, you're lying, first of all, but... At least you'll acknowledge that maybe sometimes you try to prove yourself to yourself. A third wrong motivation, to prove myself to myself. This time is different. This year is different. I can do it. I am tired of being a failure. I feel so guilty about this or about that. This year it's going to change. But again, this is only the worship of the self. Chester concludes, Trying to impress God, others, or ourself puts us at the center of our change project. It makes change all about my looking good. It's done for my glory. And that's pretty much the definition of sin. 
Sin is living for my glory instead of God's. Sin is living life my way for me instead of living life God's way for God. But living life God's way for God actually requires effort. Not effort to perform so that he'll accept me, but out of response to his unbelievable and amazing grace. If there is no effort to become more and more like Jesus, there may not actually be a true belief and worship in him. There might not be fruit that is attached to his vine. Paul knows that he has not been made perfect yet, but nevertheless he presses on to make it his own because Christ Jesus has made him his own. He is trying to obey and he is trying to out of the right motivation. The glory of Christ and because of the saving grace of God. Okay, so now you may be thinking, all right, you've convinced me uh, that change shouldn't be about my looking good. It should be about God's glory. But, so I want to change, but how? How do we do it? How do we change? Well, lastly, the, the method of change. So how does Paul say that he will make knowing Christ his own? How will he change? Verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He, he hasn't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's tempting for us to think that this means that we should just forget about everything in our past, never again considering or thinking about any sort of success or failure. But look, Wednesday morning, January 1st, isn't a reset button. It's not a redo or a blank slate. You may have a new 2014 calendar, but you're bringing all of your bad habits into 2014 also. You're bringing broken relationships. You're bringing self-worshipping and sinful motivations. You're bringing your laziness and your frustrations along with you. 2014 isn't a do-over. But what Paul is saying is that whatever is behind him, whatever success or failure is behind him, is irrelevant toward his present pursuit of Christ. His straining after him. He will pursue him for the rest of his days. So as much as we'd like for midnight two days from now to be some silver bullet, some magic potion that we take that makes us perfect, it's not going to happen. Sorry to break the news to you. But you know what? That's actually good news. You know why? It's, It's a relief. Because one pastor says grace doesn't look over our past. It doesn't forget the past that we bring in. Because that's exactly the place that grace looks to do its work. God is not looking for self-righteous religious do-gooders. He is pursuing after wretched sinners who recognize their inadequacy, who realize their unrighteousness. These, these humble ones, are those who God can save and transform. So perhaps you're hearing me and thinking, well, I guess I shouldn't bother to make any kind of resolution this year other than just to know Christ. That's not quite what I'm saying. That should be your first thing, right? To know Christ should be the first thing and your ultimate goal this year. But second things, second goals, aren't, bad, aren't a bad idea. 
It's good and healthy for us to time, from time to time to reflect on our lives, evaluate growth and progress, and to set goals. Kevin DeYoung says that you shouldn't take your spiritual temperature every day, but you need to look for progress over months and years, not minutes or hours. If we only evaluate our Christian progress on ups and downs, like a man with a yo-yo, we'll be disappointed and frustrated when we again hit another down. I messed up again. And then we become ashamed with our failure and our guilt. But if we instead consider our ups and downs like a man with a yo-yo who is instead going up a flight of stairs, ups and downs but with continual progress, we won't be destroyed by a sense of failure and guilt. So the end of the year is a great time to reflect, to stop and think about yourself and your soul. Am I loving God more than I was 12 months ago? Am I hating my sin more than I was last December? Do I know Christ more? Though there have been ups and downs in the last year, am I walking up the stairs? The end of the year is a great time to make resolutions that commit to strain forward and to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that is being made perfect and living with him in the resurrection. But grace must be my method for change. Though I will have ups and downs, if I am trusting in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God is ultimately for me. He is for my change. He is not against me. Waiting for the first time I mess up to spank, right? Though I make commitments to him that I will break, I must first realize, he, realize that he has committed all things together for my good of becoming more like Christ. How do we know this? Because he has sent his son to die for us and to be raised to new life for us. But this kind of thinking that I will have ups and downs requires a long-term perspective. I'm going to fail this year. But his grace is sufficient. When I showed up at the Stammtisch at the German-Texas Heritage Society, I had a short-sighted, all-or-nothing mentality. As I approached this old downtown building in, in Austin, I wasn't thinking about the next hour being an hour possibly of frustration and failure. I was thinking I was just going to show up. There'd be lots of cool, like, German 20-year-olds like me. Hello, guten Tag. Wie heißen Sie? Ich heiße Nathan. And away we go. Like, I'm a German speaker now. It wasn't that way. So the first moment of frustration, I bailed. I just quit altogether. And my guess is this is the reason that 25% of us won't make it even seven days in our resolutions. We don't have a hard, long-haul perspective. So at the first moment that we encounter frustration or failure, we quit. But in hanging out with some of the high school guys that I get to spend time with, I, I tell them to have a longer-term perspective on their holiness resolutions. We don't necessarily use resolutions language, but we're talking about resolving ourselves to become more like Christ. And I don't mean by a long-term perspective that we don't put forth effort I'm actually encouraging us to, are pressing forward and straining towards Christ. What I'm saying is that we mustn't be surprised or shocked when we prove ourselves to be who we actually really are, sinners. 
We shouldn't be surprised by our sin. We should hate it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. So a long-term exercise that I encourage our youth to sometimes think through is what some call character reverse engineering. That is, to think about who you want to be in your 80s, in your 90s, and then move backwards, work backwards. So nobody wants to be, like, if you're a 20 or 30-year-old, nobody's shooting to become, like, the bitter, angry, petty, like, demeaning older man or older lady, right? Nobody has that as a goal. So why do, why do these people exist, right? Because they've become that way over decades and decades. We've all heard stories about the old lady, the old man who has Alzheimer's and can't even remember her kids' names. But she still, her scripture is coming out of her mouth that she has memorized and dwelt upon for decades. That's who we want to be, right? The kind and gentle old man or old lady, even in her final days and breasts, is kind to her nurses kind to his doctors. So how do you become that way? You start right now. You'll never be who you aren't becoming. You don't wake up one morning in your 80s or your 90s just a bitter person. You don't wake up one day in your 80s or 90s as someone who is kind and caring. You've become that way. If you want to be kind and caring and gentle, and generous, when you're 85, what are you doing now when you're 65? What are you doing in your 40s to prepare to become that way when you're 65? If you are a young married, what are you doing to become kind, and caring, and generous when you're a 40-year-old parent? If you're in college, what are you doing to prepare one day for marriage? You don't just walk up to the altar selfless and self-sacrificing. Or if you're a teenager, what are you doing today to prepare for diligence, for integrity, for honor and purity in college? You don't show up that way. The problem with this kind of thinking is that it requires a long vision. And we're Americans, and we don't like that. We want to be fixed now with three easy payments of $39.95, right? <laughs> we don't like things that take work and decades. But that's why so often we then just quit. The shock of our sin becomes too much and we forget that his grace is sufficient for our sin and our failure. You can't make decisions for yourself 60 years from now, just like you can't make decisions for your resolutions 12 months from now, but you can make decisions for today or on January 1st. You can't decide that you'll still be going strong in your resolutions next December, but you can tomorrow. So be faithful in the next thing. Just be faithful in the next thing. But when you fail in the next thing, Forgetting what is behind, let grace do its work of transformation and press on to know Christ. Not to prove yourself to God, to prove yourself to others or to yourself, but to know Christ and his glory. So if you're thinking that all of this is just too much, especially you young folks, maybe thinking resolutions are just for your parents or something, uh, one of the greatest lists of resolutions was made by a guy in New England Uh, When he was 19, his name was Jonathan Edwards. 
He would later become one of America's greatest pastors and theologians, but at the time he was just a kid who wrote out, over two years, a a list of 70 resolutions. You may know some of these, they're pretty famous. But the thing about his resolutions were they weren't just for New Year's, meaning they weren't something that he wanted to see accomplished in his life over the next 12 months. These were things that he wanted to see changed in his life for the rest of his life. They were things that he could do to strain after Christ to make sure that he was his. So perhaps you've heard some of these, but keep in mind that these were written when he was 19 and 20. Number 53 shows that his goal was to to desire to know Christ above all else. This was his first thing. Number 53, resolved to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind, to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him, and consecrate myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I confide in my Redeemer. Knowing Christ was his first thing, his first goal. But his very first resolution that he wrote... Number one shows that he had also the correct motivation. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Hear that forgetting what is behind language in that? So rather than his own advancement in the worship of himself, God's glory in making it known was his greatest goal. Now, he did realize that he achieved also his highest individual pleasure when he was bringing glory to God, but that's another sermon for another day. And though knowing Christ and God's glory were his first things, he also made what we might call some more practical resolutions, some more second goals, second thing goals. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Number 16, resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Number 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. How about this one? Number 40, resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. You know, any 19-year-olds who are lying lying in their beds, considering how they could have eaten better or drunk better that day? This is an admirable list of resolutions, and it would do you good. You can Google these and find them pretty quickly. Uh, Read through all 70 to consider if you should adopt any for 2014. But this list often receives criticism as just like an unattainable spiritual checklist. Surely, I mean... He, he lost a moment, right? He, he, he resolved to never lose one moment. It wasn't profitable. Surely he's sometimes skipped a night about thinking if he could have eaten better that day, right? But Edwards knew before he even wrote number one, he wrote a little preamble to his resolutions. And he, wrote, he, he recognized that all of these resolutions were unattainable by himself and through his own willpower. So before he wrote anything, he wrote... Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake 
As a teenager, Edwards knew that the only method for real change in his life was the gospel of grace. He needed God's help and through his grace. We would later find out that when done out of sheer willpower or a sense of obligation, Edwards would fail. And we know this because he left us his diary. So in his diary, he wrote, this is January 2nd, 1722. I find by experience that let me make resolutions and do what I will. With never so many inventions, it is all nothing and to no purpose at all without the motions of the Spirit of God. There must be no dependence on myself. Our resolutions may be at the highest one day, and yet the next day we may be in a miserable dead condition, not at all like the person who resolved. So that it is to no purpose to resolve, does us no good to make a resolution, except that we should depend on the grace of God. For if it were not for his mere grace, one might be a very good man one day, and a very wicked one the next. Two weeks later, he wrote this, It seemed yesterday the day before and Saturday, that I should always retain the same resolutions to the same, the same height. He's doing great. He's keeping his resolutions. Two days ago, Saturday, he was doing great. But alas, how soon do I decay? How weak, how infirm, how unable to do anything of myself. What a poor and inconsistent being. Empathize with him here, breaking resolutions. What a miserable wretch without the assistance of the Spirit of God. Oh, let it teach me to depend less on myself, to be more humble, and to give more of the praise of my ability to Jesus Christ. So go home today. Evaluate your life. Take your spiritual temperature of the last year. Are you loving God more? Are you hating your sin more? If not, it may be that you need to repent of your sin for the first time. You need to repent of your motivation for your righteousness. Trust in Jesus savingly for the first time in your life. Go home and talk with your spouse, your your kids, your family, your community group. Evaluate where change needs to happen in your life. Commit to beating your body and making it your slave, as Paul says. Get in shape in 2014. Commit to leading family worship with your family. Commit to eating better or drinking less. Do some reverse engineering in your life. See where you want to be when you're 90 and work backwards. But all of these must begin and remain as second things. If you didn't see Trent's blog post last week about a Bible reading plan for 2014, you can go find that on our DSC blog. I just downloaded a really slick little app called the For the Love of God app. Uh, it's uh, by some guys at the Gospel Coalition. It's a, maybe you don't like to have all the bookmarks and papers of telling you which day you need to read what. This, you can take a plan with you on your phone. It also includes the devotionals from Robert Murray McShane. Do that. Resolve to read the Bible this year. But do that because knowing Christ is your highest goal. Not so 12 months from now you can say, I did it. I read the whole thing cover to cover. Read the Bible more this year because his glory made known in your life and in the world is your greatest motivation and with his sustaining grace as your only source and method. Because, hear me, you, you will fail in your resolutions this year. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you're going to fail. 
But Christ has not failed in living righteously for you. He has not failed in his resolutions to you. The Spirit will not fail in his work of transforming you. And if you are in Christ, God the Father will not fail in his forgiveness and his welcoming of you as an adopted son or daughter. Puritan John Owen says, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Your change, your becoming holy, does not come from making sure that you get all of your religious boxes checked this year. Your change, your becoming holy, comes from the implanting, the writing, and the realizing of the gospel in your soul. The gospel, the, the good news that God saves sinners through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that he saves us not only from the penalty of our sin, he not only saves us from hell, but he also saves us from the power of sin. He saves us to something, to abundant life in Christ and the freedom to obey him, to becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more holy and finding our highest pleasure in him. And the gospel ultimately saves us to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He will ultimately save us from the presence of sin altogether, where we no longer need to make resolutions. This is good news. Do you know this gospel? Are you daily trusting in it? Are you growing in it? Are you being transformed by it? Do you know this Jesus? Do you trust in his death for you? and his life credited to you. I pray that you do. I pray that 2014 might be a year of gospel change, that by and through the power of the gospel, we might become more and more like Christ, not for our sake, but for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not left us as sinners who want nothing to do with you, but by your great and overwhelming grace, you have saved us. And that for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation that through the life and death and resurrection we are, of Jesus, we are made right before you. So Father, I pray that the next 12 months, might be a year of becoming more like Christ. Might become a year of loving you more and hating our sin more. Of greater and deeper knowledge and trust in the Lord Jesus. We pray these things for your glory and our good. Amen.